Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Ezekiel chapter 29. Um, the next four chapters, I say 29, 30, 31, 30, yeah, four chapters, um, all have to do with Egypt. And uh, we're only going to get to two of them today, two of the first two chapters. But um, it's interesting, if you look at these four chapters, there are seven words of the Lord to Ezekiel to proclaim to the seventh nation neighboring Israel, which of course is Egypt. Now, the reason why I say seven nations is because we've been going through, as we've been going through Ezekiel, we've been t- covering the Ammonites and the Moabites, and, and uh, last week we talked about Tyre and Sidon. And so there's been six nations that God has proclaimed uh, his pro- these prophecies against. This is the seventh nation, the nation of Egypt. And if you have studied the Bible, um, you might have come to realize that the number seven is a significant number in the Bible. And it's the number of completeness. And uh, I believe that it's no coincidence that uh, there are seven words of the Lord uh, to the seventh nation uh, of Egypt. Because I think what God is trying to communicate to us is the absolute and complete extent of God's control over world events and uh, the absolute and complete extent of God's sovereignty over each of these nations uh, and the nations of the world, for that matter, and their leaders as well as their people. Um, I think it's fitting, too, that the prophecies, these prophecies of the nations, uh, conclude with Egypt. Um, Egypt was the oldest nation, basically, uh, one of the oldest nations uh, from antiquity that still exists today. Uh, Many of the other nations, you know, you don't know any Ammonite, you probably don't have Ammonite neighbors or Moabite neighbors or, uh, but you, maybe you might have an Egyptian neighbor. We, uh, Sammy Tanago, one of the ministries we support, uh, he is an Egyptian and uh, lives in California and ministers to Muslims uh, throughout the world, actually. Um, but so Egypt's been around for a very, very long time. It's even older than the nation of Israel. And Egypt is symbolic throughout scriptures as, as symbolizing the world itself. And so as, with that in mind, as we go through these chapters, you know, just kind of keep that in the back of your head as we're going through this and see if there's any application there. So Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 1 is where we'll pick it up at. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. So now we have the first of the seven messages regarding Egypt. Uh, this prophecy, we have the date for it. It was given in the uh, tenth uh, month of the twelfth, excuse me, in the tenth year. And uh, that's basically one year before Ezekiel's prophecies that we studied last week that were given to Tyre. Um, Verse 3. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own, I have made it for myself. Now, we are given the dates of these prophecies and... According to history, the date, uh, you know, we look at the, the, the dynasties of the pharaohs in Egypt, and this 
The, the Pharaoh that's being described here is a guy by the name of Hophra or Hophra. It's H-O-P-H-R-A. So Hophra is probably, I don't know how you would pronounce it in Egyptian, but um, and uh, roughly about 589 to 570 B.C. was when this, uh, or excuse, that's when he reigned as Pharaoh, I should say. And here God is describing this Pharaoh as a great dragon that lies in the river. And the river would be speaking about the Nile River, which is uh, the most famous of Egypt's rivers and the largest of its rivers. And here you look at it and you see Pharaoh's pride revealed here. I mean, he's ascribing to himself uh, the power of the creator. You know, he says, look, my river is my own. I have made it for myself. How arrogant uh, can that be? And it seems so absurd that in the face of the creator, a created man in his ignorance is saying, man, I created this for myself. You know, Matthew Henry wrote this, Self is the great idol that all the world worships in contempt of God and His sovereignty. You and I as believers, we're not to get uh, puffed up within ourselves as well. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it. You know, we, we kind of start taking for granted things. We start saying, you know, I, I've done this. I've accomplished this. Or, you know, I, my hands have produced this or whatever. And we can get prideful too as Christians. How do I know that I am getting puffed up? Well, I think there's a good way that you and I can maybe just gauge our own lives and say, well, you know, how am I getting puffed up? Or am I getting puffed up rather? And there's two ways I think we can. And one is... Do you pray daily? Because lack of prayer, you know, prayer is relying on God's provision and His protection. And when we stop praying, it's, we're no longer depending upon Him. We're depending upon ourselves. We don't, need to, we don't need to pray. I've got it under control, God. So that's one way, lack of, lack of, and I would even say lack of daily prayer. And then lack of thankfulness. No longer acknowledging that, that it is only by God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace that we have what we have. I mean, you think about it, you go, you know, yeah, I, I, I've earned this paycheck, I've worked for it, yeah, but who gave you the job? Well, God gave me the job. Uh, but still, you know, I've done all this. Well, who, who gave you the intellect to do your job? Who gave you the physical abilities? Who prevents you from getting a disease or a disability that you can't work? God does. And we need to remember that. We need to be thankful. And, and uh, so two ways that we can judge, I think, if we are getting puffed up ourselves is if we're not praying and if we're not thankful. So here in regard to Pharaoh's arrogance and pride, God says this in verse 4. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver. Now from a historical or a worldly perspective at this time in history, 
both Egypt and Babylon were rival empires. And militarily and economically, politically, they were roughly on fairly equal footing. The balance of power really could have swung either way at that time in history. But you know, the Bible says in Psalm 75, 7, God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And God had decreed that Babylon would be his instrument of justice. And he would give Babylon victory and success. And Egypt would be brought low. They would be subdued by the Babylonians. You know, and God through the prophets like Jeremiah and even before Jeremiah, Isaiah, who lived well before Jeremiah, hundreds of years, or not hundreds, but lived many years before Jeremiah, they all foretold the coming exile. And they warned the kings of Judah and the people not to turn to Egypt for deliverance, but to go ahead and submit to God's chastening. In Isaiah chapter 31, I I mean, this was years ago, years before this. um, And when Isaiah prophesied about Babylon, Babylon didn't even exist. I mean, they were, they were existed as a, they were just a small nation within Assyria. Assyria was a world empire then. But in Isaiah 31, God spoke this. He said, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Jeremiah, in his ministry to Judah, now Ezekiel's in Babylon. Ezekiel's ministering to the exiles that came with him um, in Babylon at that time. Jeremiah ministered roughly the same time, a little bit older than Ezekiel, but ministered roughly the same time to to the people that were still in Jerusalem. And in that time, in Jeremiah's time, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, totally ignored Jeremiah's warnings. And he sent a delegation to Egypt to work out an alliance with the Egyptians, but it failed. Why? Because God's hand was not in it. God's will, it was against God's will. And depending on Egypt for deliverance was like, kind of like going to the edge of a river you know, we got lakes around here. Don't know that. Well, we have rivers too. But going to the edge of a, of a water like a river or a lake, and and finding a bulrush or or a, or a reed in the water and pulling it up and going, you know, I'm going to use this as my uh, cane for walking. It's going to be my hiking, you know, stick. The moment you lean on it, it would collapse because it's just a reed. Many years before, God had warned Judah about Egypt um, in Isaiah. Also, Isaiah 31, it says, Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They will all perish together. I mean, you know, years before, God had been speaking to the, to the uh, nation of Judah, saying, Don't rely on Egypt. Don't put your trust in Egypt. They look strong, but don't do it. And uh, just like Judah was not to look to Egypt, you and I are not to look to the world for our deliverance, for our strength. We're not to lean on the world. In fact, in 1 John, John writes this, Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And so we're warned not to, not to lean on the world or to look to the world. And so, verse 8, continuing, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, because he said, The river is mine, and I have made it. Indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers. I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Ethiopia. Neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast pass through it. And it shall be uninhabited forty years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate. And among the cities that are laid waste, her cities shall be desolate forty years. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. And so here God is declaring that Egypt is going to lie desolate for 40 years. Now, if you go back into the history books and you look at what the Bible or the history, Egypt's history, there's no record of a deportation of the Egyptians to Babylon. But yet, the 40 years actually fits really well with the time that Nebuchadnezzar defeated Pharaoh, which we we have that, we know historically when that occurred, and from the rise of the Persian Empire under Cyrus. You see, because Babylon reigned as a world empire until the Persians took over, Cyrus, king of Persia. And under that king, um, he declared that, or decreed that the native peoples could go back to their their native land. That's why Israel was allowed to go back to Jerusalem. The, the Hebrews were about allowed to go back. Now, it would have been natural for Nebuchadnezzar, as he goes through these nations, to take captives back to Israel, just like he did with when he, when he conquered Jerusalem. He took the exiles to Babylon. But, you know, again, it's missing from the Egyptian historical record. To me, the fact that Egypt's humbling periods of history is missing missing from the the historical narrative, it's not amazing to me because, think of it, human tendency is not to parade your faults and your weaknesses. You know, when I'm sharing my story or I'm telling you stuff, there's stuff, you know, in fact... uh, uh, I think it was last Wednesday, I was doing a Bible, preparing for a Bible study, and there was something I was going to share, and I thought, you know, that's too embarrassing. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to be transparent and open before you, but it's like, that's kind of an embarrassing thing. It's something that I would rather just not even remember anymore, and so I don't want to present that to you guys. I'm not trying to hold things from you, believe me, but, but you know, that's our nature, right? Is not to, we want to paint ourselves in the best possible light when we talk about people, we, you know, when we talk to people about us. And I think the fact that the Egyptians didn't write about their humbling defeat by the Babylonians, they didn't write about the, the, the stuff that occurred when, uh, when God, the ten plagues that occurred in, in Egypt, um, I think it's not amazing that they did that because that's human nature. Who would want to parade and say, well, this, is, this was a humbling time in our history? 
But you know what's also equally interesting to me? Is the fact that the four writers of the Gospels, they include their failures. They include the humbling moments in their lives. And to me, that is amazing. And to me, it also supports the truth of the gospel. A lot of people say, well, you know, the gospel is just written years after the fact by people and was just made up. Well, if you were making up your own story about your life and you wanted to promote something and it wasn't true, would you present all these things about you that was really humbling? And, you know, would you uh, talk about the fact that uh, as disciples, you guys argued with each other who be the greatest in the kingdom? Would you do that? I don't think so. Would you tell people that, you know, when, when Jesus was telling his parables, man, we really didn't understand his parables. Well, you'd want to present yourself really godly. You know, well, you know, of course he said this, and I right away understood it meant that, you know. Would you admit that you were not able to cast out a demon at the base of the Mount Transfiguration? Remember when Jesus came down from the mountain and, and, and there was a demon-possessed uh, boy and, and the, the father came up to him and said, you know, cast out this, and the disciples couldn't do it. Would you, would you pr- promote that if, you were trying, if it was a made-up story? Would you, as Peter, deny Christ or say that you denied Christ or that you didn't believe that he rose from the dead at the first time like Thomas? You see, to me, that just lends truth or lends, it it helps me to believe that, you know, the Bible is exactly what it is. And and it's God's word. And there's the truth of the scriptures, that these aren't just stories made up. And so it's not surprising to me that the Egyptians wouldn't write about it. um, But it is surprising to me that the gospel writers do. Because it's truth. Verse 13. Yet thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin. And there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations anymore. As I was studying this, I was looking, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. The, the children of Israel went into the wilderness. Remember when they were ex, or the Exodus, they were brought out of Egypt as slaves. They went and traveled through the wilderness for 40 years. And here God is saying that the Egyptians now are going to go into captivity for 40 years. And right away, my mind's going, well, I wonder if there's a correlation. I wonder if there's something there. And, you know, I'm not sure if there's a correlation, but there's definitely a contrast that can be made. If you remember the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they were slaves. They didn't start out that way. Joseph was actually second to Pharaoh in command. But when he died and and that Pharaoh died and other Pharaoh raised up, you know, the Hebrews became the enemies. And they ended up becoming slaves. And they were oppressed. And they were the lowest in the Egyptian society at that time. And God brought them out of, the, out of Egypt, delivered them miraculously, and they wandered for 40 years in the desert. And as they were wandering through the desert, God was turning that, na- turning that people into a nation that he would lead. And when they went into the promised land, the Canaanites dreaded them because they had heard of all the things that God had done. They went from lowly through the wilderness and God brought him up. But the contrast here is Egypt. Egypt, 
was a very proud nation at that time. It was a world empire. They started out proud. They were a ruling people. And now they are exiled for 40 years. And in the end, they're brought back into the land. God's merciful. But they're brought back a lowly nation. Never to be a great nation again. That sounds kind of like a biblical precept to me, doesn't it, to you? James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. If you're proud, God will take you down. If you humble yourselves, God will raise you up. That's a biblical principle. There's all kinds of scriptures. You know, God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Egypt started out prideful, and God humbled them. Egypt would never again be a, a world-ruling empire. God's word is true, folks. You know, that's that was fulfilled and has continued to be fulfilled 25 centuries later. Egypt still, it's a nation, but it's not a world-ruling nation anymore. They've never been a world empire since that time. God's word is true. And Egypt was to serve as a reminder to Israel. Look at verse 16. No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but will remind them of their iniquity when they turn to follow them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. So for Israel, every time they go, you know, I wonder if I should start leaning on something other than God. They get, all they have to do is look south to Egypt and go, oh, that's right. Look what God did to Egypt. I better just trust in God and not trust in any other nation. That was the first word of the Lord concerning Egypt. Now we get to the second word of the Lord concerning Egypt here in verse 17. And it's interesting, verse 17 is out of historical sequence. It says that this prophecy or this word of the Lord was given in the 27th year. And all I can say is I'm assuming or presuming that Ezekiel tied all these together because they all relate to, Israel, or to Egypt, I should say. And so he put them all in one place. Verse 17, And it came to pass... In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder rubbed raw. Yet neither he nor his, enemy, er, nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor which, it ex which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil and remove her pillage. And that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor because they worked for me, says the Lord God. In that day, I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. In that day, I will cause the horn of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. I wonder if I just read that twice. <laughs> Maybe I did. <laughs> A little cut and paste error there. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, you guys really needed to hear that. <laughs> you know, after the destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar spent about two or three campaigns or war battles, basically conquering the Ammonites and the Moabites, as God had prophesied that he would. 
And then he turned his sights on the nation of Tyre. And we talked about Tyre in, in depth last week, but some of you weren't here last week. And uh, Tyre was two cities. There was, the, there was the, the city on the land, and it's just up in Lebanon, just north of Israel. And there was a half a mile offshore was, another, was an island that was also called Tyre. They were both cities of Tyre. And when Nebuchadnezzar came to Tyre, you know, they were a very wealthy nation. They were sea traders and the, 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 the enormous wealth that was there in Tyre and it was a prize to any, any world conqueror that would, you know, it's like, well, set your sights on that. Um, but it escaped Nebuchadnezzar because most of the people, they went offshore to the nation, to the island city of Tyre, which was fortified, heavily fortified, that you couldn't get to it from land. You had to have uh, a navy. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a navy, so he couldn't. And he spent 13 years sieging the city of Tyre on land, so he never received any, you know, he got very little of the plunder, basically. And God was said, and it's interesting, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, basically. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked person, while the, the Babylonians were. God did a work in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but we will get to that when we get to Daniel. But what's interesting was he was a tool in God's hands. And God said, you know, you, you plundered Tyre, but you spent 13 years, but you never received anything for it. And you never received your wages. And so God's a good God. He's going to give him his back pay. And so God says, when you go to Egypt, I'm going to give you the plunder of Egypt. And that'll be your pay for all those years you spent in Tyre. You might say, well, what happened to Tyre? In 325 B.C., Alexander the Great came with his armies. Years later, came with his armies and he saw Tyre. He didn't, have a, he didn't have a navy either. But what he did, and this was prophesied, we talked about it, it was prophesied here in, in chapter, uh, I think it was chapter 27 or 28. Um, Alexander the Great took the rubble, he destroyed the city of Tyre that was on the land, he took the rubble, literally scraped it down to bedrock, and he dumped the, the, the rubble and the, the land, you know, whatever it was, the trees, the timbers, the dirt, the, the stones from the buildings, and he started building a land bridge to the island shore or the island of Tyre, half mile offshore. And it took him a while to do it, but he finally made it to the point where he actually could come across with his soldiers on about a 300 foot wide causeway, and then he attacked the city of Tyre and, and, and plundered it. And it was prophesied, God said he would do that. You can go to up to northern Lebanon now, or not go to Lebanon now, and, and you can look at the look at it, Google it, and you can look at it, and you can see you can see this piece of land that goes to this place where old Tyre or the island of Tyre was. Anyways, very fascinating prophecy, and so here um, God is telling through uh, Ezekiel uh, to Nebuchadnezzar that He's going to give Nebuchadnezzar the plunder of Egypt for back pay. So now we get the third word of the Lord against Egypt. And this one, there's no date given for this, so we don't know when this word of the Lord came. But chapter 30, verse 1, says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Well, woe to the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. That's a fascinating prophecy to me because I think it has a near, it's a near prophecy and a far prophecy. It has a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment. The near prophecy or the near fulfillment. This was the day of the Lord for Egypt. 
it was a day of judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. But if you read that, it also is very similar to prophecies in Joel chapters 2 and 3 and Revelation 19. And I think it's also, prophetically speaking, of a day of the Lord for the world, which Egypt is a symbol of, a day of judgment coming upon this world. Verse 4, The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken. Egypt's wealth would be completely destroyed or taken away. And God says here, even her very foundation. What's a foundation? A foundation is something you build on, right? Something, you know, your house rests on a foundation and, it, you know, your house is supported by that. You, you put everything on, on your foundation, basically, to support your house. And Egypt's very foundations would be destroyed or would be broken down. And we'll get into, God's going to spell it out here shortly through Ezekiel. But you know, just like Egypt, the world's foundations is going to be destroyed during the Great Tribulation, the Bible prophesies. The Bible prophesies the world system and everything that man depends on to be stable, everything that we look to and put our trust in, during that time, it's going to be shaken and destroyed. The Bible says during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be a famine, you know, scarcity of food. Right now, you know, you and I, you know, I look at my fridge and go, oh, I guess I'm almost out of milk. I need some more eggs. Hopefully Dan and Tracy will bring some or I'll have to go buy some. <laughs> or, you know, there's, there's, you know, groceries. I'll just run to the store and get my groceries. There's coming a time when the store is going to be empty. It's going to come a time when there's not going to be food in the, you know, crops in the fields there's there's gonna and some nations some places are already experiencing that worldwide we're blessed where we are here but come the great tribulation it's going to be a worldwide situation everyone's gonna you can't depend on just just go to the store and get food that stability won't be there the bible says that there'll be pestilence what's pestilence it's a fancy word or old word for diseases basically you know they talk about drug resistant germs nowadays they're they're starting to worry like you know the antibiotics aren't killing the germs anymore there are certain things that are becoming resistant and you know they're they're talking about the possibility of great plagues happening well the bible prophesies that's going to happen in the great tribulation the financial system is going to be completely destroyed babylon you know our the bible talks about the city of babylon and in 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 30 minutes in a half hour or one hour it's going to be destroyed financial system. You won't be able to depend on that. There'll be geopolitical instability, wars and rumors of wars. The Bible even says that there'll be earthquakes in diverse places, and we're starting to experience that even now, I think. You know, of anything, now I, I was in the Coast Guard, I'm sure that was someone this morning, I was in the Coast Guard, you know, so I was been out on the ocean, you know, been, been in, in the wa- on the water in a ship and stuff, and, you know, you, you get your sea legs after a little while, and you get on shore, and it's like, it's nice to be on firm ground. If you're afraid of flying, and you have to fly somewhere, it's sure nice when you land, right? It's like, oh, finally on the ground, you know, thank you, Lord. And, uh, you know, you might get out and be like the Pope and kiss the ground or something like that. I'm, I'm glad I'm here. And, you know, we depend on the firmness or the stability of the ground, don't you? If you've ever been in California or in other places where there's earthquakes, 
it's very disheartening when the ground that you're standing on starts like moving like water. It's like, whoa, this is, this is not normal. It's very disheartening, and it's very humbling when you realize that even the ground that you think is stable isn't stable. And all those things that man depends on for stability, God's going to take that away during the Great Tribulation. The terra firma will not be firma. <laughs> There'll be natural disasters, ominous signs in the heavens, things that are going to just, just overwhelm us. And, and like I said, you know, we're starting to see those things now, right? The Bible says that there's birth pains. And if you know what birth pains, you know, a woman is about ready to deliver, you know, she might have pains for a month or two ahead of time. They come and go and they, you know, they start out a little not quite severe and then they get more severe and more frequent. And we're seeing that now. The Bible even says there'll be hailstones. Now, again, stability. You know, in a hailstorm, if we have a hailstorm here in the Midwest quite frequently, you just go in your house, right? I'm protected. I'm not out in the open where I'm not going to get pummeled with uh, hailstones. But the Bible says in the Great Tribulation, those hailstones are going to weigh 100 pounds. Do you think your roof is going to support a 100-pound hailstone flying from the sky? Uh -uh. There ain't going to be anywhere to run. Everything that you depend on in the world or everything that the world depends on is going to be shaken because they didn't depend on Christ. Because they rejected Jesus Christ. The Bible even says the stability of the family is going to be destroyed. It says that the love of many is going to grow cold. Uh, parents and children, brothers and sisters, they're going to turn on each other during that time. The Great Tribulation is going to be a time of God's wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And you see, without Christ, society crumbles. And God's going to show that in real time to the people that are alive during that time. But the same is true for you and, our, you and my lives right now. If we completely leave Christ out of our lives, out of our marriages, out of our families, they're not going to last either. They'll crumble too. That's why it's so important, you know, premarital counseling. I always tell people, you know, make sure that Christ is the center of your marriage. You know, as you're, as you're growing up, you know, I'm just, you know, get into the word, get into prayer, build a relationship with Jesus Christ because you're going to need that because someday things are going to shake your world. And if you don't have that firm foundation in Jesus Christ, anything else that you build on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be destroyed. Now, it's also interesting to note that in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, it also prophesies in the last days that this king of the north, we won't talk about that today, but the king of the north is going to attack Egypt once more and plunder it. And it says Libya and Ethiopia's destruction is going to fall on the heels of Egypt's uh, demise. So there's still some prophecy that's going to be happening here regarding to this passage of Scripture. Well, the scope of Egypt's defeat is described next. All that she prided herself in, all that she put her hope on or in is going to be destroyed. Look at verse 5. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, Chub, uh, and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, those who uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down from Nigdal to Syene. Those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. They shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries, and her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are destroyed." 
On that day, messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt, for indeed it is coming. So what's being spoken about here is all of Egypt's allies who she relied on to assist her in that day, in her day of distress, they're going to be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies as well. And just as Egypt was a false hope for Jerusalem, so Egypt's allies are going to turn out to be a false hope for Egypt. And when Egypt's allies, the Ethiopians, the Libyans, the Lydians, all these other nations, when they see Babylon do what, they do, what it does to Egypt, when they see Egypt fall, they're going to start shaking in their boots because they're going to realize we're next. Thus says the Lord, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most terrible of nations, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. If Egypt relied on her vast population for strength, the Babylonians are going to slay them. It says, I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it by the hand of aliens. I, the Lord, have spoken. If Egypt's hope was on the Nile, and it was, she, re- she relied heavily on the Nile and the river delta of the Nile, um, it would be a natural defense. God says, I'm going to dry up that. You're not going to be able to rely on that river. Verse 13 Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noph. Noph is ancient Memphis, um, the capital of Egypt. If Egypt's hope was in her idols, God would destroy that hope also. He continues, as there shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. So Egypt's ruling class and her princes are going to be destroyed. I will put the fear I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgments in No. I will pour my fury on Sin, the strength of Egypt. I will cut off the multitude of No and set a, <clears throat> excuse me, and set a fire in Egypt. Now, Sin and No, those are actually cities in Egypt. So, Sin shall have great pain. No shall be split open, and Naf shall be in distress daily. The young men of Avon and Pi-Beseth shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. At Taphanes the day shall also be darkened when I break the yokes of Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughter shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So if Egypt's hope was in her youth, God says the Babylonians would slay their young men and take their daughters into captivity. And in describing these cities, these, these different cities of Egypt, basically north, south, east, and west, God's basically giving the, the scope, the geographical scope of what he's going to do. And basically all of Egypt is going to fall to the Babylonians. And we have the fourth word, fourth word of the Lord here. This one's uh, dated the 11th year of the exile. Um, what's interesting about this one here, this next prophecy here, this next word of the Lord, was the 11th year of the exile. It was about that time that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had put a siege on Jerusalem. And uh, the Egyptians 
you know, they were tr- Judah tried to ally itself with the Egyptians, and so um, the Egyptians, they, the Pharaoh and his armies, they came forward, came north into Israel, and they were going to try to rescue uh, the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar received word that, hey, the Egyptian armies are coming north. And so he temporarily lifted the siege on Jerusalem and went down to go to battle against uh, the Egyptians. During that time, Jeremiah, of course, was the prophet in that time. And in Jeremiah 37, Jeremiah, it says, God had told him to buy a field in the land of Benjamin. There's a whole story behind that, but... During the time when the siege was lifted, Jeremiah tried to go back to the land of Benjamin to go and claim that land that he had purchased, that field that he had purchased. And the leaders of the city saw him leaving the city, and they accused him of trying to defect to the Babylonians, and they went ahead and threw Jeremiah in a dungeon because they figured he was a traitor. God had warned the people of Jerusalem that although that siege was temporarily lifted, don't get your hopes up because they're coming back. And that's, you know, the people of Jerusalem, they did. They, they looked at it and go, wow, we've been delivered. The, the Babylonians are leaving. But God said, they're just going for a little bit. They'll be back. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, had a battle against uh, the Egyptians. And uh, it was a decisive, it was a, he was victorious and he came back and completed the siege on Jerusalem. So chapter 30, verse 20. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break Pharaoh's arms, and he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded man." Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down. They shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. When God speaks, when the Bible speaks about the arms of Pharaoh, What's being described here is the strength of Pharaoh, the military, the the power and the might of of Pharaoh or of the Egyptians. And God basically says, I've broken one arm and not let it heal. And so, you know, you have one broken arm. You you can't hold a sword in that one. So at least I got one good sword to go, you know, one good arm to hold a sword to go into battle. And God says, I'm going to break that arm too. You're not going to be able to hold a sword against the Babylonians. Well, at the battle of Karchemish, Pharaoh's power, which had occurred earlier, Pharaoh's power had already been reduced by Nebuchadnezzar years earlier. And now God is going to completely weaken Pharaoh. And God's basically saying, Pharaoh, you're not only going to not be able to deliver other nations, you're not going to be able to go up to Jerusalem to deliver them, you're not even going to be able to deliver yourself. You know, when I look at our nation today, 
And what I see is happening with the foreign policy that's been going on in our nation. Um, I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's I don't think it's an underestimate to say that our power is declining in the world today. Um, and I think it's not a temporary thing with the current the current administration. I think it's I think this is a trend that we're going to see. And I'm not trying to be unpatriotic or anything, but I think as a nation. We are prideful, and we've turned away from God, and we're continuing to turn away from him. And as a result, our power and our strength is also diminishing. And, you know, for many, many years, our nation was a nation that other countries looked to for stability in the world, and they looked for us to, to kind of be the policemen of the world. You know, Lech Walesa, he was the leader of Poland when, when Poland fell from the communists. You know, he was the, the guy that was a, was he an electrician or whatever, and, and he started that whole movement in Poland and became their president eventually. And, and he said so as just as much. He said, you know, we're looking to the United States to stand firm against all these things that are happening, and they're not. And, and we're seeing a decline here. And I don't think it's a temporary thing. I think God is removing the prominence of the United States. And you know what's fascinating? And we're, I'm going to just give you a little bit of teaser into Ezekiel chapter 38. We'll get to that in probably a couple weeks. But in Ezekiel 38, there's a very fascinating prophecy. And in that prophecy, the king of the north, whoever that is, we'll, we'll get into that when we get to Ezekiel 38. But he's going to come down against a land of unwalled cities, against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations. Any clue who that might be? Israel. Israel's been a nation that's gathered from all the nations. The, the land of Israel was a desert for, for many centuries, and then, and then it became the Jewish state, and now it's a prospering. I mean, it's like the breadbasket of the world. I mean, there's all kinds of produce and fruit and everything in, in, that, in that region there. It's a waste place that's now inhabited. And there's a prophecy about the king of the north coming down to try to plunder it. And what's fascinating is in Ezekiel 38, verse 13, it describes these nations around them. And it says, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, say to this king of the north, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to take great plunder? You know what's being described there? Is this, this, this ruler, whoever he is, he's going to come down and he's going to try to attack Israel. And all the nations around there are going to say, what are you doing? They're going to, have, they're going to proclaim a resolution. This isn't right. You know, there's going to be a cost to pay for it. But there's not going to be any power behind it. They're going to be helpless to do anything about it. And if you look at what's happening in our nation right now, we're getting to that point. where We're getting to a position where we're almost helpless to help other nations. And pretty soon we'll be able to help ourselves. And I think it's because we've turned our backs on God. And we've become prideful. So what can you and I do? I, you know, like I said, I don't want to be unpatriotic. I, I, you know, do we just sit back and go, look, it's, it's all going to happen. So let's just, you know, sing kubaya and wait for Jesus to come back. No, no. We need to be praying. We need to be active in our political process. The Bible says to pray for our nation and to pray for our leaders. That's something that you and I should be doing. We should be praying daily. And I think for you and I as individuals, you know, and as Christians, 
we should be setting the example for the rest of our communities. We should be praying daily. We should be returning to daily relying on God for his strength and protection and his provision. And we should be daily thanking him for everything that comes from his hand. And so, you know, I look at that and I go, you know, yeah, there's a lot of things happening. And and I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, believe that we are close to the last days and that Jesus is coming back soon for his church. And that things are going to get, you know, we talk about the tribulation, the seven years, this terrible time. You know, I think it's going to, it's not going to be like, you know, everything's rosy and then all of a sudden it's going to be terrible. I think we're heading in that direction and we're seeing it now with a lot of stuff happening in in our world, in our culture. And so what can we do? I think we can be praying. I think that's really the key for, for us as individuals. And, you know, I just want to encourage you because, you know, if you're like me, sometimes, you know, prayer can, prayers work. Have you ever realized that? It's funny, you know. Uh, I used to, you know, I always want to pray in the mornings, and so sometimes I'd be laying in bed, and i go, okay, I, I'm going to pray. The alarm goes off, I'm going to pray. And you know what? i fall back asleep. And it just, it's just... You know, just my flesh, right? My spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak and stuff. And so what I've been trying to do and getting into the habit of doing is just getting up and going into another place of the house and getting on my knees and praying. And, and I'm not doing it to like trying to tell you, oh, he's really spiritual. He gets on his knees. Now, the reason why for me to get on my knees and to get focused and praying that way is because I don't, I don't fall asleep. You know, I'm in a position where I'm not going to like just doze off or anything like that. And, and I can focus on praying. And I, I've been putting that into practice. And you know what? It's been, it's been really cool. God's been answering prayer. It's been great. I want to encourage you to fall in love with prayer. Because I think that's, what, that's the key for us right now. Um, you know, God's in control. We don't have to fear what's happening. I mean, we, we can be concerned. We can definitely be active politically and, and not you know, take a back seat and all that. But we do need to realize that God is he's raising up nations and putting others down. And, and we might be in a position where now God is bringing us down. You look at the prophecies in the last days. I don't see the United States in, in, Old, in New Testament prophecy regarding the last days. I don't see it. I know there's some people that, that come up with things and they say, well, look, there's symbolizing the United States. Um, it could be, but I don't see it. All I'm saying is, Things are going to happen, and things are getting worse and worse. But you know what? That doesn't mean we just throw in the towel. God has placed us in this generation. God has allowed you to be born in this generation for a reason. And, and, and it's not an accident that we are alive and we're here today. You know, it's, it's not just a coincidence of time and, you know, we just happen to be. No, God placed you and I in this generation, at this time. And he's got a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And I think as you pray and you align yourself with God's will, God will reveal his will to you, and he'll, he'll get you in line with his will. But it happens through prayer.